Our scripture that we're going to focus on this morning is Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. So listen now to God's word. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The temptation for status and power is a pretty universal temptation. I know several of you are teachers among us. Beginning as early as elementary school, you start to see the concept of popularity in schools, right? (laughs) And then as, as students get older and get into late high school and approaching college or maybe some not until after college, there's a realization that this is a a status that is, is fleeting. Sometimes that shifts towards a desire for a good job so that you can make a lot of money. Sometimes the motivations are good to do good in your community or in the world. A lot of times the motivations are still to to achieve a certain status with power. In the secular world, it always, almost always amounts to achieving a status as being over or more important than others, as if one has achieved more value. In Scripture, this concept starts as early as the creation story. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve to eat a fruit. But the serpent doesn't tempt them with the taste of the fruit, but with a promise that it will make you godlike, giving you a more important status or power. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he faces this temptation. We're told in Matthew 4 that the Spirit has led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In verses 8 and 9, We hear this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, of course, Jesus does not fall to this temptation. There's a theme throughout Jesus's teachings, especially in the gospel of Matthew, where he is reversing the cultural norm, where he's reversing the assumptions that people hold, specifically about what humans 
should strive for when it comes to status or power. It's first evident when we refer to, in what we refer to as the Beatitudes. You know, the lists of blessed are the, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst, the merciful. From the beginning of his teachings, Jesus is reversing the assumptions that people held about what it is good to strive for. Instead of loving your neighbor and hating your enemies, he teaches love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Instead of praying and fasting in ways that draw attention to yourself, Jesus teaches to do those things in private. He is constantly reversing this cultural idea of what it means to be great, of how to achieve status or power. Perhaps this is nowhere more evident than in our passage this morning, Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Uh, the, the writer of this gospel sets up this scene with a lot of stories before that that lead up to this moment. We're going to take a look at a few of those leading up to chapter 20. If you're following along, we're just going to go back to chapter 18 and, and hit some of the highlights there. In Matthew 18, we read that at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answers this question by looking around and then pointing to children and saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must become humble like one of these children. You must become humble like a child. When asked a question about how to become the greatest, Jesus points to those who had the least power and status in the society and points to children. It's just a chapter later uh, that children are brought to Jesus for him to pray for them. And what do the disciples do? It says they speak sternly to the children. They're trying to protect Jesus' time. He's too important to be doing this. Of course, Jesus corrects them. And you have to wonder, did any of the disciples think back to what has, they had just heard? And think, oh yeah, we're supposed to actually be more like the kids. They thought his status was too high to be spending time with the kids. Next, we get the story of, of what we call the rich young man. <laughs> the man who comes to Jesus and says, how can I get into heaven? How can I enter into your kingdom? And Jesus starts off by saying, well, follow the commandments. And this guy asks, well, which ones? And Jesus lists them. He says, I've done that. I'm good. And then Jesus says, well, well, okay, if you really want to do this, sell all of your possessions, give it all to the poor, and come and follow me. And we're told that he walks away sad. Because ultimately, to give up his possessions, it's more than just stuff he'd be giving up. He'd be giving up his status. We label him in this story as the rich young man. That's his status. That's his title. He would have to give that up. Moving into chapter 20, we then get a parable of the laborers in the vineyard. 
there are, are different groups who start working in the vineyard at different times during the day. There are those who work all day, some who work just the end of the day, and some in between. And at the end of the parable, Jesus says that they're all paid the same amount. Now, some were angry because they had worked more. They had earned a higher value than the others. But Jesus, again, reverses what would be assumed to be right and good and levels the playing field. And then, immediately before the passage that we read a moment ago, in the middle of chapter 20, we get this little parenthetical paragraph. It's about the status and the power of Jesus himself. And he says that the one they are worshiping as the Messiah is going to be flogged and mocked and crucified. He's revealing this to them for the third time in the Gospel of Matthew. That's what he says about his own status in society. And it is really quite remarkable, quite incredible, that after all this, James and John and their mommy decide that now is a good time to approach Jesus with the request for positions of honor in his kingdom. After all this, and Jesus talking about his death being crucified, they decide now's the right time. And so we get the story that we read just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. We're going to take a, a little bit of a closer look at this story, invite you to try to kind of follow along. I'm not going to go line by line, but we're going to, we're going to pull out some key phrases from the telling of this story. There are a few details that can make its meaning richer for us this morning. First, notice that when the mother approaches Jesus, she doesn't just dive right in. We're told that she kneels before him. This is a woman who is honoring Jesus. The, the, the act of kneeling is an act of worship. She comes to Jesus worshiping him, acknowledging his lordship. She approaches Jesus in an act of worship. And this is a perfect example right here in Scripture that Christians can worship Jesus while still missing the point of his teachings entirely. You see, her posture is correct. She is kneeling before Jesus. But her desires, her will, they're not aligned with his. The next thing for us to notice is Jesus' question towards her. We're told that she comes asking for a favor, and then Jesus asks her, what do you want? These four words, they're actually two words in the Greek, carry a lot of meaning. They really get at the heart of discipleship. It's a question for all of us to hear Jesus asking us, what do you want? If we honestly answer this question, what we will find 
is it can be a barometer for where we are in our discipleship. Do my desires align with the desires of Jesus? Perhaps it's a question for all of us to take home this week and think about. If Jesus were to ask us, what do you want? How would we respond? The woman responds in the way that many parents would. I'm guessing that those of you who are parents, some of you were probably already thinking about desires you have, not for yourself, but for your kids. And so she has this request for her children to have positions of honor in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus answers this question, but not to the one who has asked it. The two sons who I imagine to be hiding behind her, avoiding all eye contact with Jesus at this point, they're standing right there. Jesus knows this request isn't coming just from their mother. And so he answers with the plural form of you. When he says, you do not know what you are asking, he's speaking to all of them. Jesus recognizes their ignorance. You do not know what you are asking. As I read through this story several times this week, I became pretty thankful that Jesus recognizes their ignorance because it reminded me that Jesus recognizes my ignorance. Thank goodness Jesus is patient in his responses to us when we fail to think and act like him. And then after some back and forth about why this request will not be granted, the other ten disciples get wind of what's going on. They aren't happy about it. Hear these words again from verses 25 through 28. Jesus responding to, to them being upset about what has taken place. He pulls all of them together and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Jesus points to the power and status of their culture. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. A more literal translation of this would simply say that the Gentile leaders are domineering and are authoritarian. It's a heavy-handed, top-down leadership. Jesus isn't attacking or attempting to correct that leadership style of the culture. He's simply acknowledging it. He's observing a fact. But then goes on to say, it will not be so among you. He doesn't say it shouldn't be so. He doesn't say, I wish it wouldn't be so. It's an imperative command. It will not be so among you. Actually, the opposite will be true. Jesus says, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And when he says this, he's also making it clear to the mother and the sons that asked the original question that they were simply asking the wrong question. Notice Jesus doesn't say that the problem is with the ambition to be great. The problem is in the assumption of what makes someone great. 
The assumption was that power and status make a person great. But in his kingdom, greatness is achieved through being a servant. Now, Jesus doesn't simply say that whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. It's actually more specific than that. He says the great one among you must be your servant. Why does that matter? There's a few words in there that are actually quite important. As he is speaking to his 12 disciples now, he's using language of community. This is not simply a call to go out and serve, to do random acts of service. Those would be good things. But what Jesus is talking about is more specific. Jesus is declaring that to be great, you must be a servant to the community in which you live. The one, the great one among you must be your servant. Looking again at, at, uh, at the twelve, he is saying, serve one another. Don't just go out and serve others. I'm sure Jesus would be cool with that. That's a good thing. But to be truly great, you also need to serve one another. In joining a church, you're really joining a community. You are saying, this is my community in which God has placed me to live. Our membership vows are ways of us just saying, these are things that we think God says we need to do in order to live as a Christian community. When someone joins the United Methodist Church, they take vows to faithfully participate in its ministries through their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their service, and their witness. We've heard about several of these already, and we'll hear about one more next week. But when we're talking about service... We're not saying we need more volunteers for programs. We're hoping to provide opportunities to serve. Because as followers of, Je as followers of Jesus, we're called to give up self-seeking ambitions for power and status and instead seek to serve one another. And then in turn, we are serving God. Now, Jesus actually gives us a model for this in himself. At the end of this passage, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, bringing it back full circle to what he was talking about when the mother and sons came to him with the request that he will be laying down his life in a great act of service. He came not to be served, but to serve. He fed the poor, he healed the sick, and he washed the disciples' feet, and so much more. He humbled himself to the form of a servant. Those of us who want to be like him must do likewise. Now, I can't help but pause and recognize that many of our, our normal opportunities for service might be on pause. You know, even something as small as the act of 
passing candy out out of your trunk to children is a way of you doing something kind for people in our community. I've only been here for two years, but I'm well aware by now that in November, normally every Sunday, we are giving some sort of plea for acts of service to serve through the city of Bethlehem. Some of those normal acts of service are on pause. But I want to suggest to you that right now, actually, we have a greater need to be serving one another than than we have in a long time. Because people are in deeper times of distress. There's an even greater need for us to serve one another. Now, some of you have gone to this church for a long time. A lot longer than either of your pastors. Some of you have held positions of service in this church for a long time. I want to suggest that this might be an opportunity for us to reflect on how we are serving. That this is an opportunity for us to be creative about how we can serve our community and our church. Just this week, I got an email from a woman who was participating in our online worship and probably is right now. She wanted to participate in the Operation Christmas Child that we do uh, each year and uh, wasn't comfortable going out and, and shopping and was asking if there was somebody in the church that might do that for her. That's just one example. I mentioned that in the first service and saw several hands raised already, so I'm sure that will be taken care of. That's just one example of something that is a need in our church. There are lots of people who aren't comfortable going out in public. There are lots of people that we haven't seen back here in a long time. Our church has more need than I can remember in the past two years, and I'm sure going back farther than that. And so I want to suggest to you that this week, reflect on how you are serving your community. And think about creatively, how is God calling you to serve one another? And in doing so, upholding your vows to faithfully participate in this church through your service. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your patience with the disciples when they miss the point, And we're thankful for your patience with us. God, we pray that this week as we reflect on how we might best serve your church and your community, help us to be creative. Help us to be courageous. And help our will to align with yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.